Want to shift someone's destiny? Calling all CPAs, a.k.a. community and corporate partners in action. Become a community liaison or a corporate sponsor for our Give Hope Drives for the homeless and needy families. Donate tax-deductible funds, food, blankets, and books. Sponsor and serve our monthly luncheon, mentor a youth, or go on a foreign mission and make a difference. Contact our Soaring with Eagles radio show host, Crystal, at your team at buildthatbiz.com or visit our nonprofit page at fullcolormovement.com. Welcome to Soaring with Eagles with your host, Crystal Richardson, a.k.a. Sergeant K. Each week, we hear from Crystal and her successful guests as they share their triumphs, tragedies, tools, and secrets for living a full life complete with financial freedom laced with fun and fulfillment. Crystal takes a controversial and edgy approach to unveil interesting facts about millionaires, billionaires, and game changers, and how they have accomplished life success while giving back. Now, here is Crystal Richardson. Good morning, everyone, and good morning, Solomon. How are you? Crystal, I'm doing absolutely fabulous. How are you? I'm doing good, doing good. Really great to have you here. It's been a minute. We've been trying to get together. So thank you for being on the show today. Uh, we would like to just, first of all, as we normally do, just acknowledge all those who watch us and tune in to us. Uh, we had a number of countries this past week. Um, China is still has a, an uptake. So we really appreciate you guys uh, tuning in and, and all across America and all of the countries that listen in to get some nuggets for for their journey. So thank you all. Thank you all for listening. So today we have the Solomon R.C. Ali. And I just really appreciate, like I said, uh, you being with us. We, we met a number of months ago and have been talking back and forth. So um, could you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listening audience today? Okay. Um, I'm Solomon Ali. Um, I do finance. I run one of the largest minority energy companies in the United States. I think it's the fifth or sixth largest uh, minority um, energy company in the United States. I also am um, the CEO of a company called Revo, Revolutionary Concepts, where we hold um, patent intellectual property of two-way audio-video communication. And we control a little um, space called that, which you may know of it like one of our licensees is um, Wayne, which is owned by Amazon. And so a lot of security systems use that doorbell. So you might know our technology that way. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's who I am. <laughs> okay. Well, that's just a portion of who you are. We'll get into uh, some more conversation related. You're trying to be modest. I know that's what it sounds like, trying to be modest. But, uh, but thank you for being on today. So when, when we talk about... Uh, business, when we talk about finance, investing, mergers, acquisitions, all of those things, you have a wealth of knowledge uh, in that area and even have been called like the mentor to, to billionaires. So, so what was, I want to just take, take it back a little bit. So when, when you were growing up, probably around the same time I was, we've had this little battle related to our ages. Uh, what, was, what was one of the things that you thought about that you might want to do when, when you grew up? Let's say maybe when you in, were in elementary school, what were your thoughts? What was going on in your head at around that time? You know, when I was a kid, about somewhere between the age of 8 and 10, um, I went in the store and 
I, we lived in East LA at the time, um, 68 in San Pedro in East LA. Went in the little corner store and I looked at a slingshot, and slingshots were like a dollar something. And back in that time, we were growing up a dollar something was a lot of money. Um, and so I went home and started making slingshots. I tore a pair of jeans, get, got uh, coat hangers and some black electrical tape, made my own slingshots, needle nose flies. And my slingshots actually worked better than the ones that people would buy. So for about 10 or 15 blocks, kids would come and they would buy my slingshot. And at that time, I had sold so many slingshots from what I had made in just a couple of weeks, I think it was. I don't remember the exact time, but this is what I do remember. My mother said you made $373. And that was more money than what a school teacher made in a month at that period of time. And of course, I didn't care. I had no concept really of money, right? I was just making slingshots and we were running around the neighborhood. We were running around the neighborhoods and just kind of shooting them and and that was it. So that was the beginning for me. Later in life, I had an electronics class, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Weaver. And so I was a very bad speller. And we had words that were just incredible to actually spell in electronics. So I had to do extra projects to keep my um, GPA way up and to get an A in this class, which I shouldn't have gotten an A, but because we could do extra work, I did a lot of extra work. And so that's when I learned about finance. Um, because my parents were, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of money, but I didn't know that we weren't as well off as some of the other kids. Because at this time that I'm speaking of, they had moved us to a place called West Covina. And it was a predominantly white area and a white school that I was going to. And so, of course, we didn't have as much money and resources as they did. And so for me to keep my GPA up, they gave me $100 for every um, A I got and things like that. And then they gave me the money to buy all these extra projects. And so that, that made a difference. And, and I learned a lot, and I thought I was going to be an engineer, but I started learning about financing in my electronics class. And from my early days, and just figuring out, oh, in business, how, how do you get money? In other words, being a person of color, I got rejected a lot. And I didn't take it personal. I just wanted to know why and understand the why. And so I worked with all the different people and to figure out the why and things of that nature. And that's all. I said, okay, I can do this. And then I started getting really good at doing this. <laughs> Very good. So I've done about 150 acquisitions today um, in my lifetime, which is a lot of acquisitions. Um, and I've raised quite a bit of money uh, for companies. And, of course, being a person of color, we sometimes have to do things in an unorthodox way. Well, it's not unorthodox. It's just not a custom that everybody else might follow if you got a really great credit score and things like that. Because even if I have an 800 credit score, I might not get the same loan that one of my white counterparts may get. So keeping that in mind, I may have to be a little bit more creative on my finances. So I may have to ask the owner to carry back a little more paper. So there's just different things that we have to do in financial engineering. To make right. right. So you said a whole lot right then. So I'm going to, again, go back just a little bit. And uh, we had the same childhood from a, from 
portions of what you said. Not exactly that I got $375 from selling slingshots, but we made any and every kind of slingshot that you could imagine. Like we had all different materials, just like you were saying that we would use and cut up and my mom would buy, she would be looking for something that would be missing because we made a slingshot out of it or we made the, are they called nunchucks? The, the, the Kung yeah. Fu things with the... <laughs> Came. We made those we made go cards. We made everything. Okay, so engineering was in my blood from a child. I actually, you know, am an engineer by uh, by degree. I have some other certifications and stuff too. But back then, that's what we did, right? You just made stuff and 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 sold it. So we were kidpreneurs with that too. So that's awesome that we had that in common. Now, the other thing that you mentioned is that having to be more creative, having to be more creative. So it is where Someone would go for a job, I would go for a job, and this is something that's just common in our communities, that, that you have to have a, a better game plan, better words that you use when you're in the interviews, or even when you're on the job, sometimes you have to do more in order to get the same or equal or, or more recognition based on what you do. So it's, it's interesting that you would say that, uh, because that is something that is, that is common uh, for for people that sometimes people don't necessarily understand that you know you have to put in the work, but sometimes you have to put in more work. And so uh, I want to just talk about that principle just for a little bit, and then we'll we'll get into uh, you know what you do now for a living and what things that you've done. But let's talk about that principle of of being a quote unquote minority and having to put in extra work or or be more creative. What were some of the things that you did that you consider extra above and beyond or creative in order to get where you are today? Well, let, let's start with, I have a saying, okay, you don't have to lie, cheat, and steal in business, okay? All you have to do is be able to do the work. The people who lie, cheat, and steal can't do the work or refuse to do the work for whatever reason. Now, that being said, being a person of color, you're going to experience in business and in your journey, you're going to experience more rejection than the average person. A lot of times that's because you're going to be far less um, undercapitalized than your counterparts out there. Your network will not be as extensive, okay? So those things all play a part into it. And then when you come down to it, a lot of people are just not willing to give you a chance. So as we grew up, we grew up in the same era. So we learned that you have to be, what, 10 times better. You have to do 10 times the amount of work, okay, just to get the same recognition or get the same results, okay? And we had to be accepting that, oh, even if we didn't get the results, you didn't get the stop, you had to keep marching on. And so that's what I learned, and that's where I come from, and that's how I really learned finance, is that I had to go to so many banks, and get turned down by so many banks, so many VCs and private equity companies and things of that nature. And I was like, this is ridiculous. How are these people doing? And so the hunger and the drive to understand is what drove me. Because I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. And I had to figure that out. And so in figuring these things out, a lot of times it's tough. It's very tough because you don't get to really eat. <laughs> you know, you're not enjoying your life. Like I would talk to some of the kids I grew up with that were young adults. They had great paying jobs. They were, they were doing their thing. And here it is. 
Yeah, I created, went in the military, came back, couldn't find a job. So I created my first um, maintenance company. Now, I took the maintenance company in six months from zero in revenue to six million in revenue in six months. Okay. We had had 71 employees, all subcontractors and things of that nature. And the story went like this. This was my story. I joined every apartment association within a 25-mile radius, every single one. And I was normally the only black person. Not normally. I was the only black person in every single one of those apartment associations. So I got a lot of benefits um, by their grace because I was so young. But also, I got lowballed a lot because they didn't really want to pay me a lot. So I would say, give me $500 per apartment, a minimum of three, and then we go and do it. And I learned this skill from my parents because they had a lot of rental properties that we had to go fix up after football practice and track practice. And my God, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Um, But I had to do it. And everybody else got to go play or relax and just chill out, right? But I had to go do this. And it came... Very important to me when I couldn't find a job and I was able to grow that maintenance company so quickly. So I get the first contract. I had to go in and paint these um, apartments. And I'm sitting at the baseboard and I'm masking it off, taking I say, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> but I have taken the contract and everything. And so I said, now, being creative, okay? Being creative. I didn't think of having employees when I was going out getting these contracts. So being creative, I said, okay, I'm going to get some people that are doing at a cheaper price than me. And so I began to calculate, okay, I get 500 bucks an apartment. How many hours will it take to do the apartment? And we had to do the shampoo. We had to do the painting, the taping off, the cleaning, the toilets, the stoves, the ovens, and then we were out. And so I had to break all that down to a time. And so I figured out, oh, okay, we can do this in an assembly line. And that's what we did. We created a assembly line. I had people come in that bath. People came in and shampooed the carpet, came in that um, spray painted. People that came in, um, they did the um, stoves and the um, toilets and things like that. And we were out in about five and a half, six hours. Totally done. And I was making a nice profit, a very nice profit. And so that's what um, I did. So I'm going to fast forward just a little bit. I had did so many of these, and I had pretty much funded it all with my personal money coming out of the military and everything of that nature. And so I didn't have any more money. So I bought, and everybody I would tell, you pay me in 30 days, net 30, business to business. So I built up all these accounts receivable. Now, Crystal, here's the funny thing. I did not know what accounts receivables were. All I knew is that I had a payroll that was due the next week, and I had no money, and I was like, and my customers were like, well, it's going to be a little longer, and all of them had all the excuses in the world, and I had no money to pay these 71 people. And so I got on my knees, and I prayed. And I pray, and I go to church on Sunday, and we come back from church and everything, and I open up the Sunday um, Times, LA Times newspaper, and I saw something that said, fact, we loan money, we'll count receipts. And so I read that, and 
first thing on Monday, I called him. And the guy, he was in Orange County. And I told him what I needed. And I explained everything to him. And I said, look, now, I have no gas money to get to you. So this can't be where you're just, you know, doing and getting people to fill out applications and you might give them money. I need money to pay my people. And so I was really honest with him. And he told me everything to bring. And after about two hours, he had basically given me a check for like about, I think my accounts receivables were 300 and some thousand. So I think he gave me like 189,000 or something like that. So it was not quite um, 55% of what was owed to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm getting ready to leave and not thinking about it. Okay, And I'm young. I was about 21 years old. And I'm getting ready to leave. And he said, are you going to be able to cash that? And I said, well, yeah, sure. Just by doing the bank. He was like, well, your bank may gonna want to hold that for a while. Didn't even think about it. Didn't even know. Never had that money. <laughs> okay. So he said, go to my bank and have them wire it and tell them you need a couple hundred dollars um, to take out so you can get some gas money and get something to eat on the way. And that was my first experience of beginning to understand finance. Now, this was a white gentleman who helped me, and he didn't have to go through those great lengths to help me or anything of that nature, but he went through those great lengths. And so I pride myself on trying to help other people, especially people who look like me who may not know or understand, let's say, factory, or may not understand how private equity works or VC works and things of that nature. What does it mean to give up a portion of your company? Um, and exchange that ownership for their money? Or is it better to turn around and give up some debt currently or take a debt versus the equity? And so I try to go through that with them and we try to normally create hybrids, okay? Wow, wow. Yeah, and one thing that you said, which is which is key, you know, you just need, I, I talked this morning on the show I did about uh, like the number one thing or first. And so the the number one thing here was that you had someone who thought enough, I guess, of you, your story, what you were trying to do, that that he gave you that advice and and he actually helped you because you know, who would who would cash a check for that amount, you know, for some, someone who's never had that money, you go to your bank and they're like, okay, where'd you get this check from? So it was totally legitimate for him to do that. And that was a great first step for, for seeing how good it is to be able to receive that. But then now that's part of what you do is helping people to, to understand, you know, finance from that perspective. So that, that was a phenomenal story. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. Um, you know, the ex- other exciting stories that we have is, like, look, when I was learning how to um, do private equity, my cousin, he, he went to work for a private equity company. And I went there and I was just looking to learn. I wasn't really looking to do the business. I was just kind of hanging out. I didn't care if they paid me or not. That's not what I was there for. I wanted to learn how do you raise money and do what you do, okay? And so I went, and the guy was like, you know, the people, not not the owner, the people, they were like, you're the worst salesperson we've ever seen. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> That's not what I'm here for, but okay. 
And so the owner came and talked to me, and the next thing you know, I raised him a tremendous amount of money, more than everyone in the room collectively. And I said more than everyone, there was 23 people in that room raising money, and they would raise on average millions of dollars every single month for different ventures we were working on. And I think I had raised somewhere around a hundred and something million in a single month. And everyone was like, what, what did you do? I said, well, I just did what he told me to do, what you guys were supposed to be doing. Okay. And that, you know, I did work with this private equity company, man, for probably about a year. And it was, that was the beginning of it. And then I went on and worked with another private equity company and I didn't like them because what they were doing but what the owners were doing is they would buy these nice, pretty um, homes and jets and things like that. And I was like, okay, that's not building a company. I don't want to be a part of that. And so I started my own. And that uh, went pretty well, um, pretty good, uh, very quickly. And the CEOs that I was loaning money to did the same thing. They were out, I was like, okay, I don't want to do that. Okay, and so then I started a chain of nursing homes. I started with assisted living. Um, my mother-in-law at the time was very, very um, of age and very sick, and she needed to go into an assisted living. Well, we were traveling around looking at them, and all of them smelled like you. I said, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. And so I said, I can do this better than that. And so we started assisted living. I worked in that assisted living 24 hours a day for 18 months. I did everything. And when I said everything, I mean everything. I bathed them, I showered them, I wiped them, I fed them, I took them on their appointments. We got no deficiencies in 18 months. And then when that was done, I said, okay, I start hiring people. And then we opened up a 20 bed, 60 bed, 100 bed, and then we transferred over to nursing homes and opened up 13 um, nursing homes. Well, the unique thing about it was I financed all of that myself. And everyone was trying to figure out how can this young black man, because I think I was still under 33, I wasn't over 33 at the time, how could he finance all of this? And so the average nursing home cost you six, seven million dollars, the average. And so it costs what? Say that again. It costs what? Six to seven million dollars, the average um, nursing home. So that's like a hundred and fifty bed nursing home. And so they're trying to figure out, hey, how can this guy buy all these nursing homes and everything of that nature? And it was because I learned how to raise the funding. I learned how to raise my own capital. And I knew that I would not go out and buy the fancy cars and the homes and the jets, because I wanted to have a really big, large business. And that's what a lot of people, you can't see. You can only see as far as you know to see. But you don't know that there's other stuff beyond that door, and there's another door and things of that nature. And so when you work with like a Solomon Ali or a um, really good um, consultant that's been there, that's gone the whole distance, they can save you a lot of trouble because they know where all the minefields are. And even if it's something that they come across that they hadn't experienced, they have a better chance of resolving and creating a solution for that than someone who had never done it before mm -hmm. or who was right. trying. So, but right. you know, 
I'm going to give a really good tip here. One of our strategies is when we do, after we do our letter of intent, right, one of the things that we do is we give a certain amount of earnest money. All our deals are always structured very simply. First thing, I'm going to pay fair market value for whatever it is that I'm buying. If it's your business, if it's your apartment or complex, I am going to pay fair market value. I am not going to haggle back and forth over price. Okay. Now, if I can get the price, I'm going to get it. Now, I always get the price that I want. Okay. The next thing that we do is we always insist that the seller carries back some paper every time. I don't care if it's a million dollar deal or a $50 million deal. The seller is going to carry back some paper. My rule, he's carrying back anywhere from 15 to 20% because I have to know that if anything goes wrong or he lied to us and we didn't catch it, that I have some recourse and then we can begin to negotiate on that carry back and adjusting it, okay? Now, the banks love for you to put down at least 20% of your own money. So between the seller and myself, we're at 40%. So we're only looking at now about a 60% finance. Right. Okay? And so that's how I normally structure my deals. Now, banks love to be in a sweet spot. They're somewhere between about 48 and about, I'm going to say, 55%. They'll do those deals almost every day, all day long. Okay. Your companies that you're looking at must be able to support the deal, okay? In addition to that, you can't just go in and say, I want to buy this manufacturing plant, and you don't have the talent or the management experience to buy it because they won't give you the loan, even if everything else makes sense. So you got to be able to bring a team with you that have the expertise and the skills within that to be able to get and qualify for the other part of the loan. The last thing I use is I always build a good credible board and I always bring a good partner with me, okay? A good partner would be, and I want you to think of it in the simplest terms, here's a good partner. When you go buy a house, and sometimes if you never bought a house before, okay, they tell you you might need a what? Co-signer or a co-borrower, right. right? Someone that has a longer history of being able to pay bills, making more money. Well, a good partner in business is a business that's a good partner that has a long history of making money that can show that they can service and help pay that debt, that they have enough assets and things of that nature. And if your business fails, they will still be able to help service the debt. So that's what you look for when you're going to structure a deal. Now, a lot of people get afraid, especially us. They're like, well, I don't have the money. Crystal, my first deal that I did was a $3 million deal, and I had probably $10,000 to my name. Now, $10,000 is a long ways from having what you would need if you're having to have 20%. That's $600,000. Right. Mm-hmm. We ain't got into the closing points and everything of that nature. We haven't gotten into the cost of the attorneys, the cost of the accountants. So, you know, when you're done, you're not at 600000 That's just your down payment. You're more at about 800000 just to be able to do that deal. Okay. Right. And so right. 
it, it gets exciting. And I was like, okay, where am I going to get this money? I remember my wife asked me at the time, she was like, you know, we're asset rich, but cash poor. I said, don't worry about it. I'll figure it out. And we just kept going. And she was like, $10,000 that we could have used somewhere else. And you're going to go buy a $3 million company. And you've never done this really before. And so we went and did it. And we bought this company. And I got all the financing and everything um, in place. Now, here's what I did on the very first one. I was dealing with a lady. Her name was Isolda. And she was a much older um, German white lady than I was. And she was selling a facility. And when she sold this facility, Crystal, I told her, you don't want to sell me that facility this way. I said, here's what will happen. I will end up taking over the um, facility and getting licensed before the real estate portion closes. She said, well, I understand what you're saying, but my attorney said do it this way. My real estate agent in the state of California said, I'll do it that way. I said, really? Okay. Well, in October 31, um, we had closed on this facility. And guess what? I got licensed. We hadn't closed the real estate. <laughs> so a half a million dollars was coming to me in rents from the um, tenants and everything like that. And she was mad. And I said, please don't be mad at me because I told you up front that I wouldn't recommend closing it that way. And she was like, well, why would you do that? I said, you ain't got to lie, cheat, and steal in business. You just got to be able to do the work. And we became best of friends. And I think she was about 25 years, 30 years older than I was. Um, and she, she started referring me to everybody else who was in the business that was around her age. So I had learned another thing. I want everybody to really listen to this. If you're buying a business, the person who is selling that business will be of the age of approximately 58 to 75 years of age. Mm -hmm. That's approximately the age they will be at. They've been running the business. Their kids do not want to run the business. They have no one to turn the business over to or anything of that nature. That business is their baby. A lot of people don't understand that. That business is their baby. That business is like a woman giving birth, like my mother giving birth to me. I am extremely right. special to her. She loves me. She poured everything into me. That's what these people have done, poured everything into their companies. So when they're willing to sell you their company, they're not just looking at your ability to be able to give them the money. They're looking at your ability to keep running their company because they still feel as that's part of their legacy and who they are because they spent all those years building it. But please remember that age group because those are the people that you're buying businesses from. The other thing is you want to always keep in mind, you're not looking for businesses that are failing. You're looking for businesses that are making money. Now, I use the same rule that the banks use, and I, I use this rule because I know that they're going to use it. I'm looking for 1.25 to be able to debt service. So that means I'm looking at all your loans and everything of that nature, and I'm looking at the new loan that I'm going to have to take on, and I need to make sure that that business can debt service 1.25 when it's all said and done. Otherwise, I'm not getting the loan, and I've just wasted my time. The last thing I'm going to share is that when you sign that LOI, 
you begin to go shop for your money. You go looking for your money. You don't have to have an idea where you're getting your money from before you sign that LOI. But once you sign that LOI, you have approximately 65 days. Even if the LOI say 90 days, you have approximately 65 days to find your funding and get them all on the same page. You got to remember, the faster you find that, it's critical because they have to do their own due diligence as well. And sometimes it's going to take them anywhere from 45 to 60 days to do their own due diligence. And that due diligence is going to be going through all the books and the records. So you should have already have placed a model together because you should have gone through the books and the records, placed your performance and everything together. You should have gotten all evaluations and appraisals done. You know, if it's a bit, certain type of business, you may need an evaluation. If it's another kind, like an apartment complex, I may need a appraisal. So you have to make sure all of that gets done. And then the bank's still going to reserve the right to have an independent. First, they're going to do a desktop. I haven't seen a bank yet that won't do their own independent desktop and then send out their own. Okay. So those are the things that you have to be aware of. Now, I always put something in there, and it's called my catch-all. Okay. If I fail in my financing and grabbing up my financing, I always have in there subject to acceptable financing. So if the interest rate's too high, I can walk away, okay? If they won't give me the right dollar amount, I can walk away. Now, normally, I don't have that problem because I just go back to the seller and we've eaten up so much time on the clock. It's like playing a football game. You eat up so much time on the clock, you got one play left, and the seller's in your um, court. Do you want to move forward? But I'm going to need you to carry another 5%. And a lot of times the sellers would agree. The more open you are up front, the more honest you are up front, okay? You do not have to play no trickery or none of that. Be honest and be straightforward up front. Let people know that you have a passion for what you're doing and that you will take care of their baby and that you can do this and grow it and everything of that nature. Do not go in there trying to lie, cheat, and deceive people. You don't have to do that. What you do have to do is build a good, solid relationship with folks. Mm -hmm. I'm going to shut up because I can go on forever about this because I love this stuff. So ask questions or whatever it is you need to know. <laughs> well, you don't have to shut up. This is your, this is your time. But, uh, but I just wanted to pull out a, a few business principles and just uh, – just talk to our audience for a moment for a, a related to a number of things that you said. I didn't take any notes down because I was just really, really just uh, enthralled with all of what you were saying. But one of the things that he said, this is Solomon R.C. Ali. And so one of the things that he said was in relation to your books, having good, solid books. And so you have to have all of this foundation in place so that you can ensure that, that you're ready if, and when a deal like this comes along or if there's someone that wants to, to buy your business. And the other part was related to just the, the 
being personable and being respectful and, and having where you're building a relationship during this time because no one wants to feel like they're being t- taken advantage of or not even wanting to sell you the business because of, of you not seeming like a person that would be able to handle it or take care of it. So you have to make sure that, that you are portraying yourself as, as honest, respectable. There were a number of words that, that you used, Solomon, that were just key because, uh, again, lying, cheating, and stealing in business, it goes on all day long, every single day, every single day. And so we, we have to know that just like we're looking into all of what they're doing, they're looking into us too. Like, who, what is your background? What kind of business have you done? And what what is what's out there on the World Wide Web about you? And so having where you have a reputation going into this is, is another thing that's key. And so uh, you were talking about uh, just so much that, that you said in there. I'm just trying to pull out a few principles. And so <clears throat> one of the other things that I think uh, that I really appreciated about what you said is that all of what you said and all of what I hope the listeners heard was about process, process. So he mentioned that, you know, these are two or three key things that I always do. And then I have like this main thing that's the umbrella over everything that I just always make sure I have that one clause in there in case uh, there's some things we need to do later. So always having like a backup plan and having a process. So I really, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this show again. I do that to all my shows because there's so much great information, but I really appreciated how you just methodically laid out what, what, what you do. And in in general, of course, but it all comes from having where you have the experience. And if you don't have the experience, you know how to surround yourself and you've surrounded yourself with other people that have that information. So you want to be involved with people that uh, have that wealth of knowledge um, because they've been there. They've done that. Um, back, I think, before we started this particular segment, you were talking about the, the nursing home and the assisted living. So... Ladies and gentlemen, he mentioned 18 months, 18 months where he was the hands-on person learning every single thing, the ins and outs of, of that business on down to actually caring for the people, 18 months, 18 months. And so in doing that, then he was able to, to expand that business, expand it some more, and then even nursing homes and expand that because of the finance side and being able to service more people. But being oh. able to be one of those bosses that, that really is able to get the hands-on to know that information and then translate that into improving and making things better and expanding, that, that's, that's what it's all about. I really appreciated that example. You know, one of the things, um, you have to know what you're doing. Right. You can't tell someone or ask someone to do something. That was something I learned in the military. They train you, they train you, and they train you. Okay, so you have to be able to know that if you have employees, and I like to know it from the bottom all the way to the top. So I know what my janitors are doing. I know what my attorneys are doing. Okay, I know what everyone is doing. I'm going to tell you another story in a minute. But (laughs) if you don't know this, then you can't direct them. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you don't know the time that it should take to get something done. You don't know when they're BSing you. But when you know, you know how to manage them and direct them. And you don't have to be a Hitler as a director, right? You, you can manage them gently and bring them back in line, okay? You yeah. know, one of the things uh, my mother used to do, and 
you know, she, she would ask me a question that she already knew the answer to. Now, as a man, as a boy, I, I wasn't a man, you know, I was just a boy. I didn't like that. Because you, you, you're asking me something to see if I'm going to tell you the truth. And thank God, most of the time I told the truth. I didn't say all the time, just most of the time. <laughs> when I figured out that she already knew the answer, it was like, of course, all the time I told the truth. Don't do your employees like that. Know what they don't know before they don't know that they don't know. Now, I wanted you to really listen to what I said, because see, a lot of times people think they know something or think they have some experience in doing something. But until someone like myself actually watch and observe, because I've been with a lot of people, attorneys too, and I don't have a degree, but I've saved a lot of my deals from millions of dollars of losses because I kept reading the contract. And they kept trying to tell me, well, that's just boilerplate. And I said, well, no, the English language is this way. And this is what it means. So we need to change it because that's the spirit of it. And it saved me millions of dollars. And I was dealing with a company. Here's the story. We're dealing with this one of the early acquisitions. We're dealing with a company. It's a $2 billion company. They had 20-some people on the phone on a nice conference call. I had myself. Um, one attorney, um, he was a senior attorney, and an accountant. That was it. And we were talking to their 20-something um, people. So they had their managers, their regionals, their VPs, their attorneys, everybody's all on the phone. And we go into about a 400-page contract, really long contract. And it's covering everything, and it's covering multiple facilities. Um, and so in there, I found a problem on page, let's say, 17. And I bring it to my attorney. I said, look, Dwight, this is a problem. This is problematic for me. And he was like, oh, well, that's boilerplate. Don't worry about it. I said, no, I'm worried about it. I need that language changed, please. So we go back and forth. Now, understand, when everyone goes back and forth, that's money, okay? That's right. money. And it's ringing fast. It's, it's not a slow tick. So I got into a habit later. I don't call you up and say, hi, hello, how was your day? I call you and get right to the point because I got to save as much money as I can. I don't want to hear about your kids right now because you're going to charge me for that. <laughs> um, but back to it, the other side would turn around and take what was on page 17, place it on page 40, 50. And we'll find it, but they did change the meaning of it somewhat. Okay, they changed the wording but it still really had the same spirit, okay? So in reality, they didn't change to me. And then so we find it again, but my attorneys never found it. I always found it. Then all of a sudden it was on page 190. And I was like, how many times are we gonna do this? So that taught me, and I'm a slow reader, that taught me, know your work, know what's in your contract. Those contracts are contractual obligations on both sides. You cannot leave it to a third party, okay? You can't leave it just to your attorneys. Now, yes, I would have had some recourse to sue my attorneys, but how much more money would that have taken? Let's get it right the first time. So I had to keep reading that document over and over, and Dwight and I, we stayed up many nights going through that document, which meant Dwight was getting paid. 
a lot of money, or at least his law firm was. And so we had to do it. When we finally closed, they, it was so bad that we were buying a building for $5 million. We were buying a company for $5 million. And they ended up having to pay me about $400,000 to buy it. You did hear me correctly. We were buying it for $5 million, And they ended up having to pay me $400,000 for buying it. Plus it covered all my legal costs. Mm-hmm. And the reason they had to do that is that there were so many mistakes within the agreements than what they were selling that we found in our due diligence. So it's very important to do due diligence. Now, I'm going to talk about that just real quick. When I do due diligence, you're not just giving me three years of financials. You're not going to give me three years of tax returns, three years of a profit and a loss and a balance sheet. No, that's not working for me, okay? And it worked for my bank one time. And I ain't going to say the name of the bank, but it was a really big bank. They bought into it. But I turned around and I said, no, I need all the utility bills. I need all your vendor bills. I need to see all the council checks. And so I did what they would call more or less an asset test. And I started matching everything up. I needed to see all the monies that came in and where it came in from, and I had to track all that down. And when I finished tracking it down, it was like, I don't think they were trying to uh, be fraudulent, but at the end of the day, that's what was happening. They had far less revenue coming in than what they actually thought they had. And the people have take, taken a lot of the vendor stuff and a lot of costs off of the books and everything of that nature to make it look like the company was profitable. And if I would have just looked at the balance sheet and the P&Ls, okay, I wouldn't have caught it. In fact, my bank that I was working with, and very was one of the top three banks in the United States, they didn't catch it. They were looking at, oh, they, they were ready to fund. I was like, hold up. Because, yeah, they might be ready to fund, but who's responsible for that money? I was. <laughs> so I needed to make sure that I could pay that money back before I take it. And based on that company, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So do your due diligence. Hire the right people who know what they're doing. Don't just go out there and jump and try to buy a company and you don't have any experience. I've had MBAs work for me, PhDs work for me, and... I'm going to say trust their expertise, but as Reagan said, verify the information yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so building building the the right team is is key. I've I've been on a number of due diligence teams, uh, you know, back in back in my time as well. And uh, one of the things that that people a lot of times don't necessarily look at uh, in this way, uh, one of the things that I do is it's called reduce investment risk. So it's it's all about risk management, disaster recovery, business continuity planning. And so maybe you and I need to get together to talk about that uh, as an offering for your team. Hint, hint. But um, but it's key to have to have the right people doing the due diligence because it's done all different kinds of ways. That word is so abused. It's so abused because people don't really understand what they're doing basically, but you know, all of the different things that need to be looked at. And so the fact that uh, you didn't just do the two to three years, you went further and asked additional questions. Sometimes that's not something that people are, are ready for. And uh, it still goes back to, you know, know your records, have, have your books and orders, 
patents, um, any kind of intellectual property, having all of that information together, it's, it's key. It's key. It's very key, and it saves you money. It may cost you a little bit more up front, okay, but it'll save you a lot of money on the back end. The last thing I'm going to say mm-hmm. about it, you know, due diligence is no more or less than doing your homework. Some right. people say do an investigation, okay? Don't be afraid of it. Jump in there and do it. Listen to what your consultants are saying, but also don't be afraid to question what they're saying. You know, you're talking about risk uh, management. If a company that I'm about to buy, they have five clients, and that's representing 100% of their business. Well, I know if they lose one client, that's 20% of the business gone. So I have to be aware of that. And the same on the other side, when I'm looking at their vendors and things of that nature, they got critical vendors that's making up. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. They lose one or two vendors. I'm out of business. <laughs> okay. And so you got yeah, to be single sourced, all those kind of things with vendors. Yeah. And so and a lot of people don't know that. They just see the revenue. And right. even the seller may not realize that, oh, okay, how exposed he is. Um, based on that risk management. And so it's like you got to understand that when you go in because the one that's responsible for the money is you, and the one who stands to lose the money is you. And nobody else is going to look around. They're going to all be looking at you. All your professionals are going to look at you, and you're going to say, well, weren't you my CPA that was doing this and that? And they're going to be like, well, it was your responsibility. Your attorneys are going to look at you, and you're going to be like, well, you're an attorney, and no. So you got to be able to question people and not be afraid to question your professionals. But the best thing is, I'm going to say it this way, you hire your dang Solomon Ali, who's going to go through all of those um, I's and dot them and cross all those T's. Hire people who know it, who love it, who enjoy it. Because at 2, 3 in the morning, when I'm going through that stuff, it, it it's you know I ain't gonna say the way I normally say it when I'm with a bunch of guys, but it is so exciting to go through this stuff, and I mean it just gets the juices and everything going, and you're like, okay, you you love it, and so that's what I'm trying to say. Find the people yeah. of what they do, right? They don't just right. Do it. love it, okay? Right, right. Napoleon Hill, you know, talks about a burning desire. And so it's not just a desire. It's a burning desire, you know, yeah. as, as part of a number of the lessons that he has. And so if you don't have those kinds of people around you that have a burning desire in each of these areas, you're going to get uh, just a haphazard assessment. And so it's the same thing, you know, with me uh, being, you know, my degree is in engineering and, and um, I, a number of other things that I do. But risk management, business continuity, all of this stuff is, is so huge because you can just find like the smallest thing, but it has a higher severity or a higher, a higher way that it's going to cause an issue in, in what you're doing. And so when you look at it uh, based on what I do from reduce investment risk, is it, it's huge because these are areas that, that people do not think about. All of the different kinds of risks that are out there that could affect your business. And so we do this to uh, have where you're a business that you want to have someone acquire, you can have this risk pro forma and show it to people. And then that gives you more credibility because you're being out there with your information. And then the same thing, if you want to acquire, you use this in order to have where you're putting this together to show to other investors 
that may want to go in with you. But it has to be where it's all being collected in a way that is open, honest, and and transparent. That was something that I, I just heard this morning. My sister-in-law sent me a uh, a sermon from a pastor. He was talking about the racial things that are going on right now, but he uses the hot method that that it's uh, it's honest, it's open, and it's transparent. So uh, we're we're speaking the same language related to that for sure. I mean, it's so exciting. And the last thing I'm gonna say when you're looking to acquire companies, okay, mm-hmm. whether it's a large company or a small company, develop your strategic plan for the growth of the company. Mm-hmm. There's a few things that you have to do. Now, folks, I learned this stuff the hard way. I don't have a college degree in this. I learned this the hard way. And if I can do this, you can do this, okay? But you got to be willing to do the work. There's no shortcut. You must be willing to do the work. And so the work may take you 10 hours where it might take someone else an hour, okay? So you got to be willing to do the work and not give up. Now, but here, here's what you got to do. As you're raising your capital, okay, you also have to develop your marketing um, plan, and you have to look at how you're going to grow this business when you come up with your performance, okay? Now, your experts can help on that just a little bit, but they're going to rely on you to feed them the information. And I keep it simple. I keep this very simple. I'm going to cut all the costs by 10%. That means every vendor contract is going up for bid. Nine times out of 10, the existing vendors will cut their cost by 10%. Otherwise, I'm giving it to a new vendor. There's no ifs, ands, and buts. So I negotiate that, and I'm negotiating that within that time frame that I have within my LOI. So that's the first thing. I'm cutting that by 10%. The next thing is I'm looking at when the last increase was for all the customers straight across the board. I am not going to increase the customers by 10, 15, 20%, like some people out there um, say you should do. I don't want them to feel the increase whatsoever. So I'm going to stay at three to five and a half percent. Automatically cross the board, and I'm letting all the customers know because I need to know that I can increase that number by three to five and a half percent before I close on this deal. Okay, so I'm letting all the customers know, and most likely, none of them are really going to have a problem with it because it's such a small amount that they won't feel. Okay, then the last one is a little bit harder to achieve as I'm going to grow the business by at least 10%. What do I mean by that? If that business had five million in sales consistently the last three years. That means I have to grow that business by another half a million dollars before I close this deal. That means I have to find a half a million dollars in business. That means I got to go find new customers. And so I am going to go find those new customers, get them under new contracts and things of that nature, and get their start date to be 30 days after I close. Now, if you understood what I just said, you can do the numbers. Now you know that I not only can afford that business, because when I went in to buy the business, I made sure the numbers of the existing business can support the debt load. 
So I went ahead and increased the business by 10%. I went ahead and decreased all my expenses of that business by 10% by talking to all the different vendors. And I went ahead and increased the cost that the customers are going to be paying for revenue between three and five and a half percent. People, that is a significant amount of money when you do that that way. And that's how I was able to be consistently able to do acquisition after acquisition. Now, I've shared some things with you. There's other things you need to share, such as your capital structure, things like that, whether you should use a LLC or a C corporation. You know, a lot of people want to go out and say, oh, I'm going to do an S corporation. Don't do anything because you don't understand what to do yet. Find out what it is that you need to do. And a lot of that needs to be determined on what type of vehicle you're going to put the business in, what type of tax advantages may be available and things like that. So there's a lot to go into it. As my ex-wife used to say, business is more than a notion. It's work. And you got to want to do the work. And if you don't do the work in the beginning, you're going to be doing the work all along. And I, I say this to a lot of the young people that I help go to college. Here's what I say. If you do the work now, you only pay the price today. If you decide not to go to school, you pay the price for a lifetime. And I'm going to break that down and make it simple so there's no misunderstanding. In other words, study your butt off. Stay in school, follow through, and sacrifice the five to six years and get it out of the way. You may not even work in that career, but it's going to change the way you think, how you see things. Okay. If you decide to drop out of school or just finish high school, well, guess what? You're going to work a mediocre job, not for five, six years, but for pretty much your whole life. Mm -hmm. So which is it? I think you'd rather go ahead and spend the five or six years doing the work, putting in the time. It pays off in the end. We're all going to have ups and downs where we're unemployed and things of that nature. But one of the things, when my wife, ex-wife and I, we lost everything. She had a master's degree from Tuskegee. She was able to go find a job for $180,000. Solomon was able to find a job working at a car dealership trying to sell cars. That wasn't solid. Now, I want to put this in perspective for you. We lost a hundred and something million dollars in assets in 2006. Okay, a hundred and something million. We were living in a 18,000 square foot home. Okay, I couldn't pay the utilities. We never thought we would have those problems, ever. Business was seasoned. What I mean by season I mean business was over 10 years. Okay? We never thought we would have those problems. I trusted a good friend of mine. We had about a million or two million in the bank before this actually happened to us. And we I had foreseen it coming, and he was supposed to refinance a bunch of the properties and things of that nature and never got around to it, which would have given us another four or five million dollars to work with to turn it around to keep us from losing everything. People, I say all that to say this, she was able to go get a $180,000 job. The job I had to go get was a $30,000 a year job. So education is extremely important, especially for people who look like me, okay? 
times are different. It's harder to do what I learned to do, okay? Everyone's not willing to give you a chance and things of that nature, okay? I think when we did our first capital raise, if we had to base it on the people that I knew, we wouldn't have raised much money. But because of her network, was a lot larger than mine. We were able to raise a million dollars, I think, in about a day. And see, that's knowing how to put the right package to that together, and that's knowing your network. Okay, and you got to remember when you raise money, you got to understand you got to give people something. You can't be getting everything, and you don't want to give nothing. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's all I want to say on that. I hope that's helpful to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's very helpful. It's very helpful because, you know, uh, and I do want to um, to touch on a little bit um, a lot of what we're going through right now. You know, there's peaceful protests and there's uh, riots. There's there's all different kind of things that are going on right now. And uh, it's all people mixed together that are doing this, you know, just because of the uprage of things that have been going on for a long time. But part of what uh, Solomon said was about doing the work and putting in the work and getting that degree, even if you don't work in the area that that you get the degree in. Uh, And I I did a a show about, uh, is it valuable to to have a college education? Is Is it worth it? Because there's so many different people that they're 50, 60, 70 years old, and they still have not paid off their student loans um, because of what they're doing now, they, they haven't raised enough money to, to do that. And, and then some people, it's, it's also because they, they feel that they didn't end up working in what they went into, but we did pros and cons. And part of the pro was even if you don't work in what you got the degree in, you have a degree. And you also have the mindset that comes with college. There's, there's so many different things that you learn in that environment that, that are priceless as well. And so uh, in speaking to a young person who may be interested in starting their own business, you've given a lot of great tips already, but what is something that you would say, like one or two or three uh, quick things that you would say to a young person who's wanting to start a business? What are three things that they should learn, go and do, or know? Wow. Let me, let me repeat that question. I'm going to repeat it to buy myself some time while I accumulate the right answer for it. Um, Young people should, if you're thinking about going into a business, the first thing you should do is put your team together. The second thing you should do is where are you getting the money from? And the third thing, make sure you have your college degree. Now, I know a lot of people come and tell me, well, you know, Solomon, a lot of the multimillionaires and billionaires, they dropped out of high school. They don't have a college degree and things of that nature. People, please understand, if you look like me, the chances of you making it is slim to none. And I'm telling you the honest God truth. If you look like me, the chances of you making it without that education is slim to none. So what you need to do is get the education. What will the education help you do? It helps to create a network. A network of other people who think like you, who have a higher social economic, um, basically at the end of the day, they have what? Disposable income. Right. More of it. Because otherwise, if you're talking to that guy who graduated from high school with you and that's all he's done, right? He's working poor. 
he's not going to have any disposable income to invest with you. He might have $500 to give you. That's not enough, okay? The other thing is you want to take your college friends. Here's what I tell a lot of young people right now. Graduate from college. Go back, take all your friends that you have good relationships with, pick five to seven of them, and then you guys decide what business you're going to buy. You don't go work in that business. You buy a business. You go work somewhere else to get your experience and things of that nature of what you just got degreed in. As you make that business work, you develop another business, and you keep going and going. And now you have enough money to pay back all your student loans. You have money that's growing at a faster rate than any other retirement plan on the freaking planet, okay? And it's better than real estate. See, real estate is narrow, okay? When you buy a business, it's organic. And so... Basically, you can grow a business and create wealth a lot faster. You know, our parents and grandparents wanted us to do what? Get a good job, work 20, 30 years. Okay. That's what they believe in, and they go buy a piece of what? Land. Because I always said, God ain't making no more land, sweetie. Well, you're right, Grandma. God ain't making no more land. But the land don't help me to qualify. For anything, the land is a liability. It's a debt. There's nothing wrong with debt, okay, but it's a liability. Now, if I go buy that business, that business will help me to be able to buy that next piece of property, the next business, and so on and so on. And the value of that business will expand a lot faster than the equity in your property. But please partner with some friends, okay. And think about a good business, whether it's an apartment, small apartment complex. When I say small, I'm talking 100 units or more people. I'm not talking no duplexes or anything less than 100. That's not small. That's a waste of your time. 100 plus units, okay, is what I'm talking about when I say small. So look at that. Buy a storage unit. They are very good investments, okay? So look at those kind of things, and believe it or not, even a car wash is a pretty dang good investment. So you look at those type of businesses to buy, or just buy something that you know and you enjoy and you like, that you and your friends. But now when you buy it, you're not looking to take income out of it. You're looking to allow the income to continue to roll over and roll over, and you all have your job. So then the next year, you're looking to buy two more of those. And all of this starts with the capital structure of the first one and how you go into it. If you go in wrong, you're going to have problems all the way through. So it's very important to put the right team together and the right people and to go in it correctly. So that's what I tell young people now. That's what I would tell your audience, um, Crystal, is that's what they should do so that they don't have the college debt and things of that nature. There's a lot of tax advantages that we don't take advantage of. Like, a lot of people will go out and go buy a car. Why? Okay. Everybody knows you might need a car. But if I go create my business first and I buy a car through the business, I get to write that off. Mm -hmm. I'm writing that off. Mm -hmm. If I go just buy a car, that's just a debt. That's just a liability. 
the car depreciated 50% almost the day I drove it off the lot. So people, let's be wise and let's learn how this thing is played because there's a lot of advantages. A lot of people out here, they talk about 45. You know, right? I'm calling Trump because I, I, I have respect for everybody that's supposed to be old because that's what my Bible say, right? So forget that. If it works for them, it works for me. So I'm not going to complain. Give it more tax break. Oh, okay, this is how you're using that. Ah, I'm going to go implement the same thing. And that's what you should be doing. And that's the purpose of having professionals around you and putting that team around you that can help you to cut to the quick of it rather than you having to figure it out. Yes, you can figure it out over time, but figuring it out is far more costly than just bringing an expert in and helping, letting them help you get there. Right. So part of what you mentioned is, is something that I always say is key and, and it basically we're talking about rollovers and we're talking about write-offs. A lot of people don't understand the tax structure in order to understand what they can actually write off and do it the right way so that you don't have issues if you ever get audited. And then the rollover, like don't get it. And because of, you know, the era that we grew up in or, or just the, the fact that some people have lack, they make money and then want it right away, as opposed to rolling it over or reinvesting it into something. So all of those R words are, are very, very key uh, because uh, it's, it's something that can help you in the long run and you have more financial gains that way. And so all throughout this show, uh, you've been talking about various people. And so having mentors, coaches, you know, partners, uh, people that you, uh, VC, like whatever it is that you can do to join with other people, getting the people that you went to college with together and, and purchasing a business and that being better than real estate, you know, the narrow versus the wide of, of buying businesses and, and doing that versus real estate is something that is not really talked about a lot. And so you, you've been a wealth of knowledge. I mean, like, like you said, I could go on and on on this uh, as well, uh, because these are things that, that people need to know and understand. And as we continue to educate our audience on soaring with eagles and above your best, uh, you know, we talk about the millionaire billionaire mindset. And then what are you actually doing to be transformational? What are you actually doing to to grow yourself, to expand yourself? So it's it's the doing, not just gathering all the knowledge and not doing anything with it. So you've definitely, definitely, definitely been doing something with your knowledge. And uh, I appreciate that, not just for yourself, but what you're saying that you do to help educate people. So so thank you. Thank you so much. Any Any final comments that you have? Well, I, I will say this, um, you know, I've been an officer and director of three publicly traded companies at the same time where I was responsible to raise capital for them. And those companies really excelled. When I started, they couldn't afford to pay me. So I took it as a promissory note. Promissory note meant, hey, you owe me $200,000, you want to pay me at the end of the year. In other words, I was betting on me that I can do the job, that I can do the work that I said I could do. People, you don't have to go in and gouge people. Go in and provide service. Wash their feet. If you're able to do what you say you can do, you don't need the money up front. In fact, when people ask me for a lot of money up front, I shy away because my experience has been they never can do the job they say they can do. They're great at billing, but... I became very wealthy all over again 
by giving my time, getting paid on the back end, being able to do the work that I said I could do, and then get a piece of the company and things of that nature. So I, I want everybody to keep that in mind. That's how you grow wealthy. Provide your service and be an aid to someone else. Give them your expertise. Take a little small piece of their company and things of that nature. And that benefits them and everyone else. You know, on next time we talk about it, because, you know, you mentioned a few times about what's going on in the economy and everything today. Um, and, you know, it, it's horrific. But what I will say is this. People, do not sell your stocks right now. Do not buy any stocks right now. It's not time. People, start consolidating. We're about to see unemployment currently is at about 40 million. That's the ones who have actually reported. We're about to see 70 million. We're about to go into the greatest depression this country has ever known. Now, for people like me, it's great because that's a buying opportunity. But for others, what you want to do is start consolidating your money looking for investment clubs and things of that nature so that you can pick the right businesses to purchase so that you can buy a lot of this foreclosed real estate that will be coming up. The other thing I'm going to share with you, a lot of our wealth has gone to China. Okay, a lot of our wealth has gone to China. And if you just follow what your large corporations are doing, they've gone to China. If you look at their economy, Please go look at their economy. Look at what's taking place. Look at how they transaction and do business. You will see that that's what they're trying to do here in the United States. That will place you ahead of the curve. I have chosen to go to Africa and to look at Africa as my source of investments because I believe that they're approximately 35 to 40 years behind us on their infrastructure and things of that nature, which creates a lot of investment opportunities. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I've been to Africa about four or five times, different things that we've done over there for, for missions and for business. It's a lot of the cities uh, are, are beautiful, hotels and stuff like that. Just gorgeous, just gorgeous. So, and, and a lot of opportunity, like you said. Yes, so, well, Crystal, and such a blessing, and thank you so much. I am so humbled to have shown and be a part of what you're doing today. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for being on the show. And uh, we will uh, be back in touch. A couple of things I want to maybe touch base with you on based on, on this interview. But thank you for pouring into our audience today. All right. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank you for tuning in to Soaring with Eagles. Please join Crystal Richardson again on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another edition. Let's soar together, give back to our communities, and change the world.